Scotty, do you believe that someone out of the past, someone dead, can enter and take possession of a living being? No. If I told you that I believe this has happened to my wife, what would you say? Well, I'd say take her to the nearest psychiatrist or psychologist or neurologist or psycho or maybe just the plain family doctor. I'd have him check on you, too. Then you're of no use to me. I'm sorry I wasted your time. Welcome to episode 20 of the Film 89 podcast. As usual, I'm Sky and I'm the editor of Film89.co.uk and tonight I'm sat all on my lonesome at Film 89 Towers. But if you've seen the episode description, then you're going to know that I'm not really alone because I'm going to be joined from across the pond in the good old US of A from Philadelphia, I believe, by a very special guest tonight. But before we get to him, I'd just like to say another massive thank you to our ever-growing listener base. There's been a dramatic increase in our numbers of, uh, of downloads per day and listeners, I think, since about episode 16 onwards. And it is just getting exponentially greater with each successive episode. So I've got to say massive thank you to all of our listeners, both the ones who have been with us from the start and the ones who have just jumped on board. We're thoroughly enjoying doing this and we just hope to be able to kick out as much quality content and, and variety of film and TV related content as possible. Guys and girls, please carry on recommending us to your friends. We've been overwhelmed with all the kind words we've had from, from yourselves via Twitter, Facebook, email and, and di- direct message. Please hit us up on Twitter and Facebook uh, or email us. We're always willing to have a chat about films. Tonight's guest, he is someone that we've been wanting on the podcast since you know we started back in January. He is an incredibly highly valued member of the Wrong Reel community. Wrong Reel, of course, being the podcast uh, created by James Hancock, of which um, if it wasn't for our appearances on Wrong Reel, we wouldn't have had the confidence to sort of start our own podcast. So we sort of see ourselves as like the, the, the bastard child of the, of the Wrong Reel podcast, the sort, of, <laughs> the sort of UK arm of the Wrong Reel show. He's an incredibly knowledgeable and passionate cinephile. His standing on film Twitter as something of a, of a celebrity is, is well-earned. He is without doubt one of the f- most consistently funny people you'll speak to on film Twitter. His range is, or his massive range of taste of films goes from the films of Ingmar Bergman to the Fast and Furious franchise. He is just an all-round top guy. We're just really glad to finally have him on the show. So without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to Film 89, Mr. Dave Eves. Dave, welcome to Film 89. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for so much for giving me such a kind intro. I, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy that we finally got the chance to podcast. I know that we had been, we, we'd basically been trying to figure out a time for us to chat for almost a year now. <laughs> so yeah. I'm glad we're finally getting a chance to do this, especially with a film that I assume we both love so much. Oh yeah, I, I think it was, I think it was about mid 2017 mm-hmm. it was um me yourself and martin castle were trying yeah. yeah we were trying to get an episode on on, on the, the thing on, yeah, on the, yeah, yeah on the yeah on john carpenter's the yeah, thing john carpenter's the thing for the Flixwise podcast for martin castle's show yes 
for Flixwise Canada, yeah. another another international uh, reboot of another podcast. Yeah. Which, which you're, you're saying that Film Eighty Nine is the is the Law and Order uh, UK of the Wrong Real franchise. Uh, unofficial, unofficial, unofficial. I, I think I think we've got James's blessing, but you know he's. Um, I, I don't want to take any sort of uh, copyrights and trademarks with me there and just assume ownership of them. It was just a really frustrating scheduling thing. We had so many dates penciled in and then things came at my end, your end, Martin's end, and we just couldn't get together. And then well, the we end, were dealing with three different countries, even though were, Martin and I are in the same yeah, time zone. Yeah. It's diff- it, like this is I, – I, it's always amazing. This is only the second time I've podcasted with someone that's so far away. It's amazing that we can have a conversation like this about movies. And that, that's the magic of the internet. That's the magic of Twitter, being able to meet people from all over the world yeah. that have this passion for cinema. No, this is a this is a treat. This is it is. A treat. I, I think you know we're sort of blessed these days with the you know the the technology that you know when we were kids, this the idea of being able to have a have a you know a live video chat with someone thousands of miles away was just you know it was just unheard of. And like you know yeah. th- this coming Tuesday now, uh, myself and Richie Roberts are going to be sat here. We're going to be chatting with Hayden Spurrell, who is going to be I don't even know how many thousands of miles away in Australia, and he's going to be eleven hours in the future, which just fries my tiny brain. <laughs> You know, is there I, anything I need to look out for five hours from now, by the way? Like, any crazy things tonight? I don't know. I have I keep saying to Hayden, look, Hayden, if you can just maybe have a look on the on the UK National Lottery site on a Saturday night, <laughs> tell me what the winning numbers are, and then I'll buy a ticket, you know, back in my time, 11 hours before, and I'll share the, the difference with you. And I don't know what it is, but he just refuses to do it. You know, it, it's a, it, for me, it's the best get-rich-quick thing that, you yeah. know, yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's great this Skype and the whole sort of thing that connects us all because we just wouldn't be able to do it. There's there's no other conceivable way. But you know, it's great to be able to chat to people like you know we've you know for a few episodes in the row now we've had uh, we've had Martin Kessler from Canada, uh, we've had James Hancock and Bill Scurry in New York. Last episode, I, I you know I was I was talking to someone that wasn't so far away in um, in in England. But you know, it, it's just. The convenience of it all, being able to get people together, it is great. And it is great to finally have you on, Dave. Pleasure to be here. So, Dave, for the people who maybe are not familiar with you, please tell us about yourself, how you got into podcasting, your love of film, um, and, you know, your appearances on Wrong Reel and, you know, Criterion Cast and all the different podcasts you've been on. Sure. So, I really owe my love of movies, more so than anything, to being the kind of kid that's just like, what am I going to do with myself? I'm just sitting in... The, the living room by myself, I might as well watch TV. So TV played a very formidable role in, in raising me from a very young age, obviously, probably along with many other people of my age group. And I, I feel as though my love of movies didn't come until later until I saw that other people my own age with just a crappy camcorder were capable of making things with the amazing technology and the amazing editing capabilities. So suddenly this thing, movies, which just seemed like this 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 thing that was made by not people, just it, it existed. It came into being without that filmmaking ability. Once I knew that that was an actual trade that you could sculpt, that's really when my love of movies really came to be. That's when I started really exploring international cinema. That's when I started exploring uh, Akira Kurosawa was definitely my first introduction to that. Obviously, I had always loved things like Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Those were what I felt like was the ultimate. And being able to expand my knowledge beyond that, I, I feel as though helped me in forming not only just my love of movies, but in myself. Obviously, I then went to film school. My whole 
essence of being is wanting to make movies, wanting to write movies. It's obviously it's very expensive art, so it's not the easiest thing to always do. But when I'm not trying to make movies, when I'm not trying to write, I'm watching them. And obviously through film school through now, I have been devouring as many movies as possible, especially that of Igmar Bergman. Like you said, he's my favorite filmmaker when I'm not watching Fast and the Furious movies, which are also fantastic. And kind of I I started getting into film podcasting as a way to supplement watching movies when I was at work when I couldn't be watching them. So I would listen to people talk about them. That's how I found things like Criterion Cast and Wrong Reel. And in order to try to connect with these people that were saying all these great things about movies that I wanted to share these conversations about, that's when I really started to get back into Twitter, which I had created in college and never really used. And in interacting with these people, it, it, it opened the door to communicate with them through podcasting. Uh, obviously, I did a few appearances on Aaron West's Criterion Now podcast, which is now a part of the Criterion cast. From there, I joined with James Hancock of Wrong Reel. Uh, I think the first thing we talked about with my wife, Jess, was Giallo. We went through our favorite Giallos. We did a bunch of horror movie things. And eventually through that, I met Becky Deanna. And now we have our own ongoing series on Igmar Bergman, where we're trying to force James Hancock to podcast about every single film that Igmar Bergman (laughs) has made. Um, Our most recent episode was a couple months ago, and we talked about his, uh, his television series, Scenes from a Marriage. Yeah, and you know, I think credit to you guys. I'll put my hand up now. Cards on the table, and I think this is something we've we've spoken about privately on the wrong real group. You know, mm. I think I've only seen five Ingmar Bergman films. No, no surprise. Seventh Seal was the first one. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a lot of people's sort of gateway drug into Bergman. Um, yeah, and I think you and I were discussing when you did the um, when you discussed Fanny and Alexander. I th- I'm pretty sure I've only seen the the, the shortened uh, version, not the extended version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the others then are, I think, Persona Wild Strawberries, and you know, for the life of me, I can't think of what the other one is. But there is another one I've seen. So you know, I'm I'm just the, the complete opposite. I'm not a Bergman expert at all. Um, you know, when I was sort of taking my sort of deep dive into sort of world cinema as it was, like you, uh, Kurosawa was my sort of gateway drug, and I I just sort of absorbed everything of Kurosawa as I could. Then I moved on to Yasujiro Ozu and a few other filmmakers like that before sort of coming full circle and then kind of just being happy just to embrace anything um yeah. as, lo- as long as it's good be it sort of anything trashy and pulpy or anything sort of art house if it's well made if it's well written you know you, you can have a 120 million dollar blockbuster uh, that has got all the you know the the right talent behind it if the script isn't there if there's any significant problems with you know the direction with the performances then you know it's going to fall apart i think there's like that sort of triangle of Performances, direction, and script, and you know, it's like the fire triangle. If you remove one of the three things of the cause of a fire, the fire will cease to be. And I think it's the same yeah. there with with good films. Doesn't matter where they come from, what language they're in. Film is like a universal medium. When I was thinking when I was younger, you know, in order to broaden my horizons, I have to watch this, that, and whatever. I've come to the point now, you know, being middle aged, being forty one, that it's just like. If it's good from my objective point of view, then I'll embrace it. And, you know, it at, at that point then, I, I sort of just, that's even, I think, made me broaden my horizons even more and just be willing to watch anything. As long as, yeah. you know, as long as it, it, it's something that's recommended by friends such as yourself or, or anyone else from Wrong Wheel or, you know, uh, you know the other guys in Film 89. Yeah. Well, a couple things. One, you've seen a healthy amount of Igmar Bergman movies. Myself, I've probably seen an unhealthy amount. Not that you could ever watch too many, but I'd say your experience is normal. (laughs) I'm, I'm in the minority there. 
too, like the more I watch movies and there's always the risk, there's always the risk. I always want to watch a good movie, but sometimes you're not going to find that. Sometimes they're going to put something on it. It's going to be bad. Yeah. But one thing I found in in kind of really trying to open up my horizons, one of the biggest blocks I had was getting more into horror movies. They didn't used to be my cup of tea, but my wife, Jess, loves them. Mm. And because she loves them so much, if I want to spend time with her, I'm going to be watching horror movies. And when you watch some really bad horror movies, some really trashy, some really ill-conceived horror movies, you, you start to see there's a really weirdly fine line between a really terrible, trashy exploitation movie and a really good art house movie. There's still, there's still like this glimmer of inspiration and of hope that is somewhat removed. Like there, clearly there might still be some talent in here. It's just maybe not focused in the correct direction that weirdly enough, it's, it's so close. It's almost like if there's a circle, there's art house at the top, then there's major mindless blockbuster at the bottom. Then back at the top again, just slightly removed from that perfect art house movie is a terrible trashy horror movie and it's 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 weird how you can appreciate it for everything it is even if it isn't perfect or even if it isn't really saying what it means to be saying it might be accidentally saying something i don't know this is uh just just what you find when you really are trying to widen your horizons and trying to experience all that cinema has to offer yeah and like you say about art house horror and i think the the best example of a film that i consider both art house and horror is Toby Hooper's original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Confession time. I still have not seen oh, that movie. Dave, it is just it's it's my it's 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 honestly probably my secret shame that is now being broadcast to the world of podcasting that I've never seen it. It is just it's not your conventional horror film. It's pretty much like John Carpenter's Halloween. There's very little blood in the film, but there's mm-hmm. so much sort of suspense and build up and. Like, you know, I can't spoil it for you, but the opening shots just are completely unrelated to what you're expecting to get. And Mm. they just completely put you at ill ease and and, and tell you that something is not right about this film. I had every intention of watching it this October for like the 31 Days of Horror Challenge, and I just dropped the ball. Oh, it's a beautiful film. Absolutely amazing. And, And for me, every time I think of, you know, art house bleeding with mainstream or or sort of trashy pub cinema that's the best example i can give but dave tell us all about your sort of championing on film twitter of physical media and and i think that a lot of the time on the wrong real sort of private chat group that we've got i think there's a few people like uh both yourself i and adam rackoff who we we've sort of got these sort of i don't want to use the word geeky or techie sort of leanings towards technology and Mm -hmm. you know the 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 ways of delivering films to us but tell us about your obsession with 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 physical home media i I, i'm definitely going to say it's geeky i i I think it's (laughs) at least for me i love the idea of having a shelf full of movies that i can just stare in awe uh and try to figure out what I'm going to watch that night as I comb through my tomes and tomes of Blu-rays on the shelf that I haven't even watched yet. I love blind <laughs> buying. Um, I, I especially love the Criterion label, um, which which obviously, if anyone does not know, is the, I'm going to say, premier American uh, boutique label when it comes to art house and foreign cinema. Obviously, there's some other ones that fit into boutique labels in America. There's Scream Factory. Yes, 
Shout Factory, which has Scream Factory. Um, Arrow is based in the UK. The, the UK really has the most. There's Eureka with Masters of Cinema. You have Indicator, which is a label that I really want to start getting into. But I typically have at least one delivery of several movies per week from Amazon at my doorstep uh, for me to add to my shelf to the point that my shelf is now overly full. And now I just need a wall that I can just put all my stuff on. And I just love – It's it's almost like – the difference between having a book versus having a Kindle. I love being able to handle the disc, the case, knowing that I have it. And ultimately knowing that no matter what happens, as long as I have that disc, I can watch that movie. I, I, I think we've all learned recently in terms of streaming that streaming media is in no way a guarantee of being able to see a movie forever. There's been news recently of people that had bought things on iTunes. They owned it. They didn't actually have the physical file. And then they went, went back to download it and they spent $20 in this file and Apple saying, Oh, we don't have the licensing to that anymore. So you don't have it anymore. It's like you spent money on it, but you never fully own a digital file anymore. Mm. Uh, with any streaming technology, with anything movie wise, we still haven't gotten to that level. There's been no iPod for movies where you get to own something forever, where you can burn it to something else because they have too much of a stranglehold. And then also more recently, I had Filmstruck, uh, which never made it to the UK. Wait, no, it did make it to the UK, didn't it? It did, yeah. Um, Steve Amos. Uh, Steve Amos was a, was a subscriber, and just before the announcement a few weeks ago, um, in fact, actually, it was God. We we actually recorded an episode on the Friday that it was announced. I think it was the the, the Bill Scurry episode that we did on V. Um, I think the actual day we we recorded that, Filmstruck had announced that the service was going to end as of this coming. I think it's in November twenty ninth. November 29th. I've been trying to binge watch as much as I can from that platform all month. So I haven't even touched my Blu-rays really this month. So I could try to absorb as much as possible before it goes away. But there's another there's another case because uh, I mean, film is art, but it's an expensive art that is in the hands of big companies that want to see big profits. And even though something like Filmstruck was profitable, it was making its money. It had a very strong niche following. They're trying to AT&T, which recently bought Time Warner, is making the excuse, well, it wasn't making enough money. It was not making enough for us to, to, to for it to be viable, especially when they're trying to launch their own streaming service, which they're promising is going to be like over $20 per month launching at the end of 2019. So they got rid of this great service that everybody loved, especially within the film community, a year before there's something to replace it. Yeah, no. This is this is something that we discussed on the on the on the night we recorded that episode with Bill Scurry. Funny enough, one of the listener questions uh, was relating to you know the sort of demise of Filmstruck and how that is going to affect the way we the increase in the proliferation of all of these new services like Netflix. You've got the forthcoming Disney Channel, uh, mm-hmm. which which is going to be you know another thing altogether, and how this sort of move over to digital media is going to sort of affect how we consume films and whether or not that's going to have any sort of negative impact on the cinema. I think we all agree the fact that you're never going to beat that feeling of, of sitting in a darkened auditorium, uh, you know, watching a film on the big screen. And as much as home cinema technology has improved to just phenomenal levels, there's something about that social experience of watching a film with other people. You know, and I, I've done it recently with, you know, with Bohemian Rhapsody, which uh, my wife and I saw last week. And it was something about that group experience, which is something that you're just not going to get at home. So I don't think... It means the death of cinema, and that you know the the death knell for, for for the cinema is being sounded. But I just think we've got just so much more 
things available to us now that all it's going to mean is people like you and I are just going to have increasingly big to watch lists or to watch mm-hmm. piles if it's if it's physical media you know mm-hmm. I've, I've got a huge pile of unwatched blu-ray some of them which I've I've had as early as 2012 and you know I'm taking this oh, yeah. you know, I'm t- I took the cellophane off a of blu-ray last week and looked at the date that the actual disc was printed and thinking holy cow I've had this in my collection for like 5 years yeah. I open them the second I get them so that I don't have that guilt complex <laughs> when it comes to actually watching them. Yeah, they, they, I think there's a certain OCD with people, you know, like like you and me that, you know, like me personally, I don't like to take the cellophane off until I'm, I'm planning on watching it. I, I wouldn't be able to stand all that shiny cellophane on my shelf then. I, I'm like at least, at least 50 Blu-rays behind what I've been buying versus what I've been watching. And that's... And, that's just things that I haven't seen before. Things that I've bought that I've seen before, but just never popped in the player. That's in the hundred. And you know, it gets even worse because it's not just Blu-rays. I've actually found a little pile of unwatched DVDs from you know before I made the transition over to Blu-rays, and that just oh, yeah. sort of that kicked my anxiety into into even higher gear. I was thinking, oh man, I've got about I've got about seventy-five or eighty films I've still not watched, which I physically own, which are just basically. You know, at the moment, they're effectively a waste of money. Yeah. I bought The Motorcycle Diaries on DVD in 2005. I've never seen that movie. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I honestly have no, no, <laughs> I have no uh, drive to see that movie, but <laughs> in 2005, I wanted to own it. And, you know, as soon as a new technology comes out, then it completely sort of devalues the the, the outgoing one. Like, at the moment now, are Blu-rays going to be worth any monetary value when you've got 4K? Anytime where I've sort of had a bit of a purge of my DVD collection and sold them off at a, you know, at a, at a car boot sale or whatever, I've, I've just basically made, you know, a few pounds per DVD, nothing major. I, I don't see them as an investment. Oh, it's not a monetary investment. It's more so I, I, I have it for being able to watch the movies. I don't know if 4K is going to take off the way that Blu-ray did. Not that Blu-ray was a huge, big boom. It's definitely a big boom within the the physical media collection community. I still haven't upgraded to a 4K TV, so I haven't made that jump to 4K Blu-ray. So maybe I'm biased there. Mm. But I don't think we're going to have anything beyond that because nothing made – before now has been really scanned at any higher level than 4K, especially because even film is not being scanned at a higher level than that. Sure, we might have 8K TVs someday, but that's going to be... The the difference from the size of a TV that can fit into somebody's house isn't going to be negligible. I think that Blu-ray 4K is probably going to be the last form of physical media we ever see, to the point that it's going to be still even more niche than Blu-ray. I think everything is moving more towards the streaming thing. I think there's still going to be physical media, but it's not going to be for everyone anymore. It's going to be for people like you and me that are always going to buy this stuff, but it's never going to be the popular choice. It's never going to be like, hey, I bought you this as a gift. I know that you like this movie because they're going to say, oh, it's on Netflix. Yeah, but I think there's, you know, for the, for the you know, the, the general public, you know, the, the sort of average film fan who's just happy enough to watch a film and not necessarily watch the best available version of that film. You know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, streaming services are fine. Yeah, it, it's it's the convenience factor. It is. Whereas, you know, people like you and I, who if there's 
a longer cut of a film out there, if there's a newly restored 2K or 4K remaster of a film, if there's a version of a film with extensive special features, which like a boutique label is put together, then people like you mm-hmm. and I will, I'm sure, inevitably sort of seek that out. But I think I'll buy know, something even if it has just nice cover art. Yeah. Honestly, now, <laughs> that's that's yeah. that's as crazy. It is. There might not be any special features as long as it has like that nice box. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it, it is about that best way to watch it. There are movies that I know are available that I have try that i have refused to watch until i know that i can see it in the best form possible yeah i i think i've come to a point now where i can't actually think of that there's one film that is still eluding me that's down to i believe it's i believe it's warner brothers sort of ridiculous um attitude towards that film and that's ken russell yeah yep it is something that you know ever since uh, Lisey Tribble Russell came on wrong reel who's the, the widow of the late great Ken Russell um, you know our, our third episode where Martin Kessler came on and talked about the thing uh, the other guest we had was Matt Jenkins who actually was tutored in the early 2000s in film school by Ken Russell and he's a big fan of the devils and once we recorded the episode he said Sky you've got a load of Blu-rays have you got the devils and I was like Matt the, the devils is basically one of those films that is ba- it's in limbo at the moment it's it's in movie jail. Yeah, and you know Warner Brothers have got, as far as I'm aware, a, a decent or, or pretty much a, a pristine print of the director's cut of The Devils. And, you know, in 2018, to, to think of a film that was made in you know the early 70s, um, this at the time was extremely controversial, is a film that you can't release now. You know that that to me is just ridiculous, and it's, it, it harks back to the you know the the late 80s and the early 90s in the UK where the BBFC had such a sort of stranglehold on certain films which they just wouldn't release because they thought they were they just weren't suitable for public consumption and then when they finally relented and released films like The Exorcist I, you know I was just like well yeah it it is certainly you know a very bold film for someone like William Friedkin to make in 1973 but it you know, when, when that film was re-released in 1998 in cinemas in the UK, a lot of people were like, what's all the fuss about? It's, yeah. Not, yeah, it's not as bad as people were making out. The one film at the moment that I, I'm, I know is eluding me, and the last time I saw it was on a crummy a VHS copy that I had, but I fell in love with the film, is The Devils. Other than that, I can't really think of any other films that, you know, I, you know, I wish they'd released that. I think the most recent one was Night of the Demon, which now um, Indicator, Powerhouse Indicator, have finally released now that Sony Pictures have licensed uh, the film out to them, and they've just released mm-hmm. the, you know, the most lavish special edition of the film. I need to get that. I do love that movie. I did also get to see that movie in not pristine, <laughs> very old and not in good condition, 35 millimeter a couple of years ago. But that's a great movie. And, and I caved and watched The Devils on Filmstruck when it was playing there. Uh, but it was clearly taken from a DVD that was not anamorphic. It was in a tiny box on my TV. But I said, this is a movie that everyone raves about. And I loved it. And it was worth watching. I, I would say the only other example of a movie that I was kind of really resistant to see until a good copy existed was Tarkovsky's Stalker. I, I had watched it on a terrible DVD and felt like I hadn't really experienced the movie because subtitles were missing. Picture quality looked like I was watching like early 2000s YouTube. And now that there's a great copy that exists, it, it's it's a whole different experience viewing it. And I, I know that if I really thought about it, there are other films that are in similar conditions that you just can't find elsewhere that are stuck, like I said, in movie jail because 
some label is holding onto the rights, even though there's a desire to see them. But they say, oh, no, it's not profitable enough for us to put this out. Like, yeah. just let it, just let a boutique label take it then. But they don't want to because they want to hold on to their materials. Yeah, it was, it was a few years back when these um, the, the rise of Netflix and that was in its infancy. But you could tell it was going to be the next big thing. And I thought, well, this is going to mean that, you know, the death of physical media. And, you know, I, I think at the time, I, a few websites I followed with a sort of publish bi-monthly sales figures of Blu-ray. And yeah, Blu-ray sales have dipped. But since then, you've had an increase in popularity of labels like Arrow Video, Eureka, Shout Factory in the States, Criterion themselves, who have now branched out into the UK. Then you've seen the rise of, of labels like Powerhouse Indicator, who have only started about a year or two ago. You know, that tells me that, no, this market, like the, you know, like the market for vinyl, has just exploded and who, yeah. who, who would have predicted 10 years ago the vinyl would become popular again? It is the least portable form of, of listening to music. It's not you can't download it. No, you can't download it. It's, you know, I, I've got, on Spotify, access to any bit of music I want. It's so convenient. It, it's just so easy. It's all there on my iPhone. But people are just loving vinyl. They're loving the, you know, the, the sort of thing of collecting it, buying these pristine, you know, double LPs. And I don't know why it's become so popular, but it has. But, you know, thankfully it has because then it means that, you know, a similar thing is happening then in the world of Blu-rays and labels that I thought were going to be folding have just gone from strength to strength. So, you know, for yeah. someone like me who likes to, you know, I like to own a nice copy of a film in an, you know, where care and attention has been put into the packaging you get a nice little booklet with it yes i'm i may be in a minority but you know that's just me and thankfully i haven't had that taken away from me because of the rise of all of these other ways of, of downloading films but here's a big question i'm going to have to ask though because music has gotten a better treatment than i think film ever has if there was a service out there like spotify like apple music like pandora where you're paying 10 12 bucks a month let's let's even say 20 bucks a month where you had access to basically every movie that was ever created instantly. What uh, would that change? Because that's basically what's what what Spotify that they they have access to so much music for that subscription price. And people are trying to say that that's exactly what Netflix is, but it's not. It's no, it's not. None of these services are like that. In order to get anywhere close to that, you need to have 10, 10 subscription services yeah. in order to have anywhere near the access you have with something like Spotify or Pandora. Personally, I think that things like Spotify and Netflix are decent value for money. But then I'm pretty sure that the new Disney subscription service is not going to be cheap. No, because um, they want to make their money. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, like you say, if you want to have access to everything, unless you're going to go about it and you know go through these like sort of less than legal websites and get your stuff there for free, mm -hmm. you know, and usually you're not going to be getting, certainly not going to be getting consistent blu-ray quality downloads there no. no you know then like you say you're going to be spending how much you're going to be spending a month just to be able to watch everything mm -hmm. yeah. and i mean i'm certainly spending a lot just to own and i probably wouldn't stop doing that but at the same time i do wonder if we had that kind of access to everything like music fans do what would change and if there would be an even bigger resurgence of ownership like there has been with with vinyl and with music i, th I think truth be told dave personally you know, given the fact that you know I've not got the same ability to distribute my disposable income and direct it all towards myself, I've got a family, I've got other responsibilities. If there was something available, a sort of catch-all that allowed me to watch any film I wanted in a good quality, I would probably fold and I would probably stop buying Blu-rays. Yeah, I think 
everyone would. But the problem is that it's never had that same treatment as music. It's all it's never had a DRM free file. It's ne- it, Netflix was so close. Netflix in its heyday and when it first introduced streaming, it had so many movies. Now it's down to only original programming and the worst poorly made movies you can ever imagine (laughs) that are just, it's the only distribution for it is on Netflix. It's, it's crazy how different the treatment of movies has been from music. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, I I don't know what the future holds for physical media, but yeah, either it's going to be, you're going to have to spend about a hundred dollars a month or, you know, a hundred pounds a month just to get, a decent range of things available to you in which case you know i think that's just going to deter a lot of people and people are just going to have to think which streaming service offers the sort of greatest range of things that i personally am into and then just pick a you know, handful of them yeah it's i think it's going to get tough though it's going to get tough yeah. at the very beginning until it sorts itself out we're we're entering the dark times we are we are but before we get to sort of mired down in you know the, the, the f- film of the future let's go into the past and let's talk about tonight's film it is the 60th anniversary of the film we're going to be talking about tonight and um i believe that one of your wrong real appearances was talking about the director that we're going to be talking about tonight is that right that is correct technically we were talking about a documentary based on a book about the filmmaker but indirectly Yes, we spoke very, James and I spoke very deeply on this director, and he is, it, probably if you were to ask any normal Joe Schmo in the street if they could name uh, a film director, I'd say over 50% would say this person's name. Obviously, the, the document you're referring to there was Hitchcock Truffaut, where the, you know, the French director, Francois Truffaut, got to you know, interview Alfred Hitchcock, who's the person we're going to be talking about tonight. Of Hitchcock's, well, what did he make? I think he made about at least 60 films. Probably, yeah. Yeah, this is one of the ones that is is one of the most revered and highly regarded. And as we'll come to shortly, it, it wasn't always the case. And, and that film obviously is Vertigo. Um, but when did you, Dave, first see or become aware of Vertigo? I first saw Vertigo. I was a kid and it was on Turner Classic Movies. I, I don't know if anything like Turner Classic Movies exists in the UK. It's literally just a thought that came to my head that it might not. But obviously that was one of the original sources for young people at that time to uh, in the 90s to view these classic movies as they were originally meant to be preserved and originally meant to be seen. And it's playing on TV. And I'd heard of Hitchcock. I'd, I'd heard of Psycho. But I actually think that this was the first Alfred Hitchcock movie I'd ever seen. And the thing that really, really appealed to me at the age of 12 was the dream sequence. I thought that was so cool what was happening there. And as I've kept revisiting it time and time again as I've gotten older, this is a really creepy, dark movie that lays mm. – I, I, you can't believe that they that this got made in 1958. There's so much going on behind the subtext. And I personally think that everyone that says this is Albert Hitchcock's best movie is 100% right. I 100% agree with them. And I'm happy that even though it was not perceived well when it first came out, that it is now considered not only Alfred Hitchcock's best movie, but by many, the, the best movie ever made. It's the number one spot of Sight and Sound. It, unthrow- it dethroned Citizen Kane. It did, yeah. You know, this film, I think it premiered in San Francisco May 9th, 1958. You know, it wasn't particularly well received at the time. You know, I, you know as we'll come to later when we just, you know, discuss issues with the casting and things like that. There were there were various things, I think, that Alfred Hitchcock blamed the film on. But ultimately, I think, as I mentioned in the piece I wrote about the film back in April, it, it was just a film, I think, ahead of his time. And unlike a lot of Hitchcock films, which were, you know, I think if you look at 1955, he did To Catch a Thief 
and uh, The Trouble with Harry. Two films, you know, I think The Trouble with Harry was him just basically experimented in an outright dark comedy. He was trying to make a very British movie he without was, big yeah. stars. He and was. that didn't do well. It didn't, no, it didn't do well. And, you know, I, you know, I've written a piece about the film myself. And I think ultimately my conclusion is I don't think it's successful in, in trying to achieve what, what it was. I don't think it's a particularly funny film. Um, I think it's it's just got an odd mix of, of quirky, sort of darkly black humour that doesn't really work for me. And I can see how that wouldn't have been sitting well with audiences at the time in 1955. But for me, Vertigo was, it was probably one of the last Alfred Hitchcock films I came to. The very first one I ever saw was The Birds. And that was when I was, uh, I think, maybe about nine or ten. The Birds just, I, I just loved the film the moment I saw it. And from then, you know, I, I became aware of the, you know, the Alfred Hitchcock uh, television show which um, was airing in the UK back in the 80s. And, and then, you know, I, I, as I got older and, and, and grew an awareness of Hitchcock, I saw his films. But for whatever reason, it wasn't until 2003 that I actually saw Vertigo. It was, I think, one of the just... And, and you know, I've, I've still not seen all of Hitchcock's films, but the, the one I was probably late to the game watching was Vertigo. And I don't know how I would have taken that film if I'd watched it when I was younger, because it has got quite you know, a sort of sedate and languid pace. And I actually think that's to the film's benefit. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not the sort of, you know, just in your face, deliver the shocks and, and the horror in, in the way the films like The Birds and Psycho did. And and they were the sort of like my, my gateway drug into Hitchcock. Yeah, it's most people's gateway drug. I, I doubt there's very many people that say, oh, I love Alfred Hitchcock. Vertigo is my first. It is subtle to a point. It is. It it's, is, yeah. It's subtle compared to other Hitchcock films, but definitely has some really blatant things that, especially an uh, an adult, an older person would be like, oh, I cannot believe that this is happening right now. This is Mm. creepy. This is dark. How dare you have Jimmy Stewart be this creeper? Yeah, indeed. Much like, you know, the way Henry Fonda in Once Upon a Time in the West put in that incredible turn as just one of the most evil, sadistic sons of a a gun you, you would ever see. And he was completely playing against type. And then, you know, there, there's there's other performances I can think of where actors who had a very sort of wholesome image, like, you know, Ronnie Cox, when, you know, he played Dick Jones in Robocop. No one had ever seen Ronnie Cox sort of play someone as, as just outright mean and greedy and evil as him. And, you know, there is a dark turn in, in, in you know, the, the second half of Vertigo when we see a sight to Jimmy Stewart that is just something we're not familiar with. Obviously, you know, we're familiar with a guy from... You know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington and, you know, he's he's just this wholesome sort of all-American nice guy. And, and I think, you know, Hitchcock just sort of unlocked that dark side of him. And, you know, again, I've not seen every Jimmy Stewart film, but to me, this is him at pretty much at his darkest, I think. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen every Jimmy Stewart film either, obviously, but I would agree. And and my wife, Jess, she loves Jimmy Stewart. She loves Hitchcock. She doesn't like Vertigo because she doesn't like seeing Jimmy Stewart get to that dark place. Yeah. And and that's Alfred Hitchcock's whole thing is taking something normal and then introducing a dark element to it. And he's kind of doing that twice in this one with Jimmy Stewart and two with San Francisco, which is this beautiful city. And he even went there for the first time, I think, uh, for the premiere of Strangers on a Train and was in love with the city. But he loves taking something normal, something pleasant, something idyllic, and then saying there's something bad happening here. Uh, David Lynch does the same exact thing to a completely different level, but they're kind of based in the same thing. 
And Jimmy Stewart, you would never think he would be capable of darkness like he is in Vertigo. He, he's he's twisting your expectations constantly with all of his films. I don't think he twists your expectations anywhere as much as he does than he does with Vertigo. Indeed. And something we should have said probably at the beginning of the episode, we are going to be spoiling the hell out of Vertigo. If you've not seen the film and if you've got every intention of doing so now for the first time, please turn us off. Put us aside, watch Vertigo, and then come back and pick up where you left off because we're not going to be leaving any stone left unturned. And there are some pretty big spoilers and plot twists in Vertigo, which we're going to be uh, laying bare shortly. So please, you've been warned. So Dave, what do you know of, of the inception of the film and its background and where the idea for the film came from? So the the big story, and Alfred Hitchcock seems to disagree with this origin. Obviously, it starts with uh, a French book, uh, The Diabolicals, Les Diabolique, uh, Alfred Hitchcock raced to the patent office only to be beaten by Henry Georges Clouseau, uh, who made the great film Diabolical or Diabolique, sorry, mm-hmm. in the in '55. And the writers of that book uh, were very upset, according to according to the story, according to the legend, that Hitchcock did not get a chance to make their book. So they wrote another book with Hitchcock in mind, saying that this is going to be something that he's going to make. Uh, Hitchcock, in his interview with Truffaut, discredited this story apparently, saying there was no guarantee that he'd get the rights. But I still like that story because it's good that they wrote this specifically for him and he had his chance. And the French book, I'm not good at French, so I cannot – I'm going to butcher their names. <laughs> Pierre Boulot and Thomas Narcijac. Oh, that's terrible. And the book is uh, D'Entre les Morts, which is From the Dead. Yeah. Or, or, no, From Among the Dead, right? Yeah, it's D'Entre les Morts and it's yeah, From Among the Dead, um, which I think originally the original book was set in Paris. and. Mm-hmm. Hitchcock changed the set into San Francisco. You know, Which as, makes sense because he considered it the most Parisian city in America. Yeah, um, you know, insofar as like his topography, Paris is completely flat. San Francisco mm-hmm. is anything but. But yeah, you know, I think from a cultural point of view, yeah, the, the, you know, the two cities are, you know, they have got similarities. Definitely very cosmo- cosmopolitan, very modern, mm-hmm. on the edge of, of the future in a sense of just fashion, uniqueness, architecture. And San Francisco is one of those movies that is never pictured as being ugly in any movie. Every movie is very kind to how the city is, even if very dark things are happening in it. And Vertigo, Dirty Harry. Oh, my goodness. What's the David Fincher movie that I can't think of right now? Zodiac. Uh, Zodiac. I was trying to think of the killer. Dark things happen in San Francisco, but you always see the city in a very nice light, the city itself. It is. And, you know, anytime, you know, San Francisco is portrayed in a film, it, it does become a character of itself. Bullet, the, you know, the, the, the Steve McQueen film from 68. Yeah, Basic Instinct, the film which we'll come to, which I think uh, Paul Verhoeven was, you know, that was his homage to Hitchcock and certainly a film that was heavily influenced by Vertigo. Just San Francisco is such a unique looking city. Yeah, you've got Dirty Harry. You, you know, any, anything where you put, you know, a car chase in San Francisco is just going to be completely different to a car chase in, like, like you know, the, you know, the French Connection where it, you know, New York is pretty much a flat city, mm-hmm. and you know, the, you know, the topography of the city is is part of the of the of the of the character of the place. And you know, I think San Francisco is just put to incredible use, and you know, the, you know, the surrounding sort of countryside. I think it goes without saying that for me, there, there are three films that Hitchcock made, which are just three of the most visually stunning films I've ever seen, and this is one of them. And you know the. The, the recent Blu-ray remaster, I say recent, I think it was from 2012, 2013. It is just gorgeous. 
Yeah. For, for a film that was made 60 years ago, it just looks absolutely phenomenal. And yeah, you, know, you talk about the emergence of 4K and then possibly a move then in years to come into 8K. I don't think this film can look any better than it does now on my, you know, my plasma TV in, you know, 1080p Blu-ray. It, it just looks incredible. Yeah. And, and this was a hard film to restore. There was a great restoration effort behind it, mm-hmm. I think, in the late 90s or early 2000s because of its status as one of the five lost Hitchcocks. This was a movie where uh, he the rights reverted back to him, and for whatever reason, he didn't want them shown. And they didn't come back into the public eye until after his death. A lot of the prints were destroyed, so trying to fix this up. And Rear Window had a very similar difficulty because these are Technicolor films. With Technicolor, you have not just one version of the film. You have three different colors. And if one thing is off, if one thing is not preserved correctly, suddenly you're going to lose a lot of the movie. And I know that they had that issue, I think, with the the yellow in Rear Window. And I think they had the issue with the cyan for... uh, Vertigo. So it had to undergo massive reconstruction in order to be as watchable as it is today. And watching it, you you wouldn't know that it's 60 years old. You would, if, if it had less recognizable actors, you would think that this was maybe made in the 90s and made to look like the like the the 50s. Yeah, you know, for me, the, the, there's that nostalgia thing of the actual colors in Technicolor. The, you know, the Technicolor process. You can mm-hmm. always tell it's Technicolor, but there's you know there's something just timeless about that and Mm -hmm. as you know as film stock and and processing you know techniques you know moved along we we sort of we lost that sort of magical technicolor look Mm -hmm. and and vertigo i think is one of the best examples of that you know that sort of look of film you mentioned there dave that vertigo is one of the five lost hitchcock films what what is your take on and and first off for people who don't know um if you want to read my piece on vertigo which i did back in april for film 89 i do go into in the introduction into a bit of detail about this basically for whatever reason, and this is one of the sort of strange mysteries that Alfred Hitchcock took to his grave when he died, I think in 1980, there were five films that, for whatever reason, he decided to purchase the rights of, and I think what was written into the clause was, I think, eight years after the theatrical release of these five films, the rights of ownership would revert to the Alfred Hitchcock estate and to Hitchcock personally, upon which he ordered the destruction of any remaining prints of the films which he didn't physically own himself, effectively burying the films, because those films, as far as I'm aware, weren't re-released in theatres until about 20 years after their original theatrical release. Dave, what do you think his thinking was behind that, and why do you think he, he made that move? It clearly can't be because he wasn't happy with these movies. These are some of his best movies. It was Vertigo, it was Rear Window, Rope, the remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much, and... The Trouble with Harry. The Trouble with Harry. I think these must have been personal favorites of his. I don't know why he wouldn't want people watching them, but at least with two of them, they were not received well. Uh, Vertigo and The Trouble with Harry. I assume Rear Window, Rope, and The Man Who Knew Too Much had good reception. Obviously, The Man Who Knew Too Much was a remake. He remade it himself. So clearly, this was him perfecting something that he had done before. So this there has to be some sort of deep personal connection. And maybe, just a theory, maybe he's thinking, if I remove these from circulation, I think these are my best. Maybe they were ahead of their time. 
if, if I withhold them from distribution and have them re-released after I'm dead, it's giving my family, the people that I'm leaving behind, it'll create more revenue for them. It's going to create a, a new nest egg for them in re-release. Maybe that's what his thinking was. You know, it could have been down to the fact that he just literally, they, they were the only films at the time that he could get this agreement on. Other films that yeah. he made were, were made uh, and distributed by Warner Brothers. You know, I, I'm not sure of the other studios that released you know some of his films but you know it could have just been the fact that you know these films were readily available to him to sort of get this agreement so he actually ended up owning the films outright you know he wouldn't be the first director that's that's attained ownership of his films i believe charlie chaplin did with most of his and certainly stanley kubrick did um with i think pretty much most of his films but they didn't say don't watch these no well well, actually um i think stanley kubrick not in all territories but stanley kubrick did that with a clockwork orange in the oh yeah in the uk for whatever reason, he thought that I think there was some bad press at the time about you know the the effect of, of violent cinema on impressionable young teenage people. For whatever reason, you know I grew up thinking there was a BBFC that withdrew that film. But it was actually Stanley Kubrick that withheld that film until he died in ninety nine, and it was only then that the film was allowed. I think um, a DVD release. Stanley Kubrick's a weird guy, though. <laughs> yeah. He... <laughs> So yeah, I think that you know, like I say, that's going to be one of the mysteries that Hitchcock is going to take to his grave as to why he did that. I think the the greatest mystery, really, is, apart from the fact that maybe the film was ahead of his time, is how was Vertigo not just a huge hit? You look back at it now, and I think you know it. It goes without saying that we're not going to just bring this uh, chat to a conclusion and say, yeah, you know, Vertigo's a ma- you know a masterpiece. It's a film that we love. I think that's a given. I don't think we'd be dedicating an entire episode when you've got such a vast body of work of Hitchcock. To dedicate one episode to just one film, that takes a pretty special film when you're talking about, you know, A Man Who Made Psycho, The Birds, North by Northwest, and, you know, you could just go on all day. Like, this podcast dedicated to analysing each film of, 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 of Hitchcock every episode. And, you know, this is so much... Just picking this one film that you can talk about, apart from the fact that maybe it just... It was ahead of his time. Do you think there's any other reason why Hitchcock... Uh, sorry, why Vertigo just didn't work in 1958? Well, Hitchcock certainly had a couple of things he blamed. One, he thought that Jimmy Stewart was too old. He never worked with him again, which is a shame because Jimmy Stewart's a great actor. Uh, he was supposed to be in North by Northwest. Instead, he used Cary Grant. Not to say that Cary Grant isn't great either. Mm. Uh, so that was one of his blames. I think when he's talking with Truffaut, he's blaming marketing. He says it was a good movie, but just poorly marketed. I don't know how movies were marketed specifically in 1958. I don't know what the marketing campaign for this was, but maybe it's just too dark. Mm. I mean, even though you have film noir going on, and there's some debates as to whether or not this is film noir, I think it toes the line, maybe not fully. I think it's a little bit too Hitchcock to be film noir. Hitchcock's really his own brand. I think it's just so, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable and it defies normal structure you have an hour and 40 minutes no an hour and 20 minutes sorry of a movie it comes to a complete close and then it starts again with a completely different movie and the second movie is the real movie it's it's crazy how, how there's just 120 minutes of setup for for the last 50 that really tell the story that he wanted it to tell. Maybe that's just too much for people at the time. It's it's really hard to say specifically what could have happened here. I think there's a lot of factors that go into it, especially that time when it's very much focused on the studio system, on the star system. What could have happened? But definitely a dark movie. And you know, it is like you say, it's a film of you know maybe. It's certainly a film of two halves, and then maybe you could sort of segment that into three. You've got 
you know the initial setup you've got this guy and you know john scotty ferguson who's a cop who in the opening scene we see you know ends up hanging off the ledge of you know a very high building you know the the cop that he's engaging this foot chase with ends up falling to his death and it's at that point um obviously it's the first time we see that the use of that push pull in the film that you know that famous mm-hmm. you know shot which you know i'm not saying i don't i don't think this was the first time that that technique was used here several people say it was you know it, it is but i think there's some sort of disagreement as to whether or not vertigo is actually the film that pioneered that shot but obviously we would see that later on in films like jaws in the famous you know alex kittner scene on the beach where roy scheider sat on the beach and we see his horrific realization of this boy being eaten by a shark and he was right all along and, and spielberg put that shot at great use there it was even used in you know the lord of the rings that you know the fellowship of the ring mm-hmm. the famous zali shot is what yeah. we always called it in in film school and always try to do it in it's yeah. it's really hard to, to to get right. It is, and it, it was, it's hard to describe. Certainly on you know something like a, a podcast, which is an audio medium, but it's it's where the the camera operator employs both a zoom in and a dolly out, which just changes the perspective, um, especially when you use you know certain types of, of of spherical lenses, and it just sort of distorts the image, and 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 it does. I think more than any other technique, sort of replicate that feeling of vertigo. I think we've all had we've all had times when we've been, you know, we felt lightheaded if we're ill, and, and you know, just at that point where you're going to pass out, it, mm-hmm. it, it is like that. It's like you know, the room is spinning, and just your, your vision just changes, and you know, your eye focus shifts. What an amazing shot to sort of link in with a film based on you know the, the, a fear of heights or, or acrophobia. Yeah, it, it's like the world stretches or it compresses like an accordion. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting that he chooses not only to showcase it in such a unique way, an expensive way. He he had to use miniatures because originally it was going to cost like over fifty thousand dollars to get this system with the camera and counterweights. Before they decided to just rebuild it in miniatures, do it with the camera level instead of trying to bring it up and down a uh, an actual stairwell. But the title of the film. Scotty, who's played by James Stewart's uh, Fear of Heights, you think that Vertigo is going to be the centerpiece of the movie. It is and it isn't. It all depends on the fact that he has this. If he did not have Vertigo, if he didn't have the Fear of Heights, the movie wouldn't happen. You wouldn't have him as the mark that the the rich, what, what is he, a shipbuilder or an exporter or something? Uh, yeah, Gavin Elster. So yeah, you've got you've got Scotty Ferguson, who's this cop who's now retired from the police force. He's sort of recuperating after this traumatic ordeal. He's sort of deciding what he's going to do next with his life. And it's at that point that conveniently an old school friend of his, Gavin Elster, meets up with him. And Gavin now has sort of inherited through marriage a shipbuilding empire. He wants to use Scotty as kind of like a private detective to follow and tail his wife. Not for the you know expected thing of her being adulterous, but for the fact that... He believes that his wife is basically haunted by the ghost of Carlotta Valdez, who is someone who died in San Francisco, I think, was it 100 years before? And, and I think that also brings up a very interesting point. When I was watching this the other night in preparation for this episode, I, I realized something. There's never anything actually supernatural in a Hitchcock movie. There's always a rational explanation for it. But that doesn't mean that he's not going to play around with it. He plays around with, with it in Rebecca. He obviously plays around with it in this. So you have characters thinking there's something supernatural happening. And that belief in the supernatural is what creates the story until you learn the truth behind it. I'd seen films, like you mentioned there, like Re- Rebecca, certainly, 
where, and certainly with Rebecca, I was expecting like a sort of ghost and Mrs. Muir type thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, like you say, the, the, the terror net tends to always come from a human psychological element as opposed to anything supernatural. Mm-hmm. And even though I knew that Hitchcock had done that in the, in the several films I'd seen, I, I took it hook, line and sinker on my first watch, probably about maybe 15 years ago or vertigo. I was going along with, okay, this is quite obviously a supernatural tale. And this woman is clearly, you know, possessed by the, the ghost of her, you know, dead great grandmother. And he wants you to believe that. He does. Because he, al- he always gets away with it. He does. And, you know, he, he puts everything in place. Because, spoiler alert, I think, you know, if at this point now you haven't seen Vertigo and you've decided just to, to stick with us, there is no supernatural element. This woman, first off, isn't the woman that Scotty thinks she is. She's not Gavin Alster's wife, Madeline. She's actually someone that Gavin has met that looks a lot like his wife and with a bit of hair dye and a change of wardrobe, actually you know, becomes someone who could be mistaken for Gavin Alster's wife. And the ultimate plot of the film is that Gavin, um, using this woman, is, is going to sort of come up with this incredibly elaborate plan to kill his own wife and get away with it. And he's using Jimmy Stewart in order to do so because he needs a witness. He does. And, you know, the way that whole plot is constructed, and yes, that, that the whole way that that plot fits together and works does sort of hang on a very sort of fragile thread. And, you know, it takes a lot of these little plot conveniences to fit together. But I think the way Hitchcock passes that across to us, because the film is so stunning to look at, you've got that incredible score by Bernard Herrmann. You've got two you know really charismatic leads who you you know you buy hook line and sinker the fact that kim novak is possessed and is just basically not herself and, and you know there's something else going on behind those eyes and you know the fact that jimmy stewart is us and he has been taken along for a ride and when just over the halfway point we actually get the big plot twist revealed to us at that point i was thinking okay so either you've dropped the ball hitchcock and you've revealed your big sort of surprise too early or there's just there's something else going on here and, and yet ultimately this is a, a you know a tale of of misdirection and ultimately murder yeah well i i think we should in case no one's seen the movie <laughs> Um, obviously the entire first hour and 20 minutes is of Jimmy Stewart tailing this woman that he believes to be Madeline. Eventually he follows her, he follows her first to a flower shop where she buys flowers. She visits a grave and leaves the flowers there, the grave of Carlotta. Then she goes to an art gallery and sits and stares at the painting. And there's this great thing where it zooms in on a piece of the painting's hair. Then we cut to a piece of her hair. Uh, where it's styled very similarly, and it's this very hypnotic connection. So you see, like, oh, there's something connected between these two women. And as Scotty keeps following her, he becomes more and more obsessed with her, up to the point that he follows her her, uh, to the foot of the Golden Gate Bridge where she jumps in, and he has to save her. And that's how they become actually connected and actually have a dialogue and actually start to have this, this romance and this love. Up until the point that they go to this place that she's been seeing in her dreams, which obviously is all part of this fabrication that Gavin and her have come up with in order to string them along. And she runs up to the top of this bell tower and seemingly jumps. And obviously he can't follow her because of his vertigo. This is what it all hangs upon, that he cannot get up those steps. But that's a big buy. What if he did get up those steps? This movie is filled with Hitchcock's uh, signature icebox logic. The things that when you get back home and you're taking your your dinner out to defrost, you think about it, it doesn't make sense. There's a lot of things here. One, he, he follows her to this apartment she's been staying at, 
And when she gets up to the room that he clearly saw her enter that has no other exit, she's gone and is leaving. She had no way of leaving by by non-supernatural means, but it's not supernatural. Two, uh, the Kim Novak character jumps into the lake and somehow actually passes out from going in there, even though it was all a ruse. She actually knows how to swim mm. so that he can save her. And three, that Jimmy Stewart would not follow her up the steps of the bell tower. Those are three things that once you really, once the movie's unmasked for what it really is, do not make sense. But by the time you realize it, it's too late. You already enjoyed the movie. And Hitchcock doesn't actually care about logic. All he cares about is the mood and the atmosphere and is if it works while you're there, while you're in the theater, while you're sitting there looking at it. And these these modern YouTube film critics that are pulling movies apart for having, like, I don't know, any amount of style would probably tear this movie to shreds. But yet it's still considered one of the best movies ever made. Yeah, when I was, you know, I was laboring over how much detail I go into with my issues regarding these, you know, these plot elements you've brought up when I wrote the piece back in April. And I thought, well, you know, let's just hit it head on. Let's let's lay bare these little sort of plot discrepancies, these sort of big logical leaps that the audience is expected to take. Let's just embrace them because I, I wouldn't change a thing about Vertigo. Yeah. It, it, it all works, and ultimately, it's how you feel coming away from the film. And, you know, I think I've watched Vertigo about maybe about three times this year, and every time I'm watching it, I'm just thinking, this film is just magnificent. Yes, he's got these, these little flaws, but because it peaks elsewhere to such a high degree, it more than makes up for those. But I don't think that they're really flaws. I, I He's... Hitchcock is obviously aware, like, oh, this doesn't make sense. It's it's like the the rosebud issue in Citizen Kane. No yeah. one hears Orson Welles say rosebud, but it's too late once you notice that yeah. because you've already enjoyed it. And if it's a good movie, and this truly is a good movie, these things don't matter. The same way that Technicolor does not look realistic, it's not realistic color. Mm-hmm. It, it it's it's a facade. It, it's a it's an artifice. You want the artifice there in order for it to make sense. And the crazy thing is, we we've still only touched half of the movie, yeah. and we've or we've even covered all these weird things that work. Not just to it. These are not flaws. I think they they actually improve it. It's it's the way it's necessary for the suspense to be built out. Now, if you sat me down before I saw Vertigo and you said, Sky, you're about to watch an Alfred Hitchcock film. A large portion of that film is going to involve a man tailing a woman around the streets of San Francisco in a car. You know, pretty much a lot of it seems real time. And I think actually, if you follow the route that they take through San Francisco, a lot of that route is actually real and you can actually go to to San Francisco and take the route they took and you'll actually get you know, from point A to point B. You know, it was actually filmed as it should be on the streets without just going to, you know, certain streets that looked aesthetically pleasing to Hitchcock. If you told me that that portion of the film would be something I would find probably the most interesting part of a film I actually outright love, I, I'd be like, no, that doesn't make any sense. Why Why would, <laughs> why would that, you know, that, that sounds incredibly mundane and boring. I'm just going to be looking at my watch. But what if I told you that Bernard Herrmann's oh, score is underneath all of those scenes? And it's for exactly the same reason as the opening minute of Taxi Driver. I often think, my God, I think Bernard Herrmann has made probably the greatest film score ever there because it is just, with just music, he tells you so much about the film you're about to see. And he does exactly the same thing here in Vertigo. The, the score is just, it's just remarkable. And... Mm-hmm. You know, I think on an upcoming episode now, on, on the next one, we're, we're going to be talking about our favourite film scores. I don't think Vertigo is going to be there for me. I, I think I'm probably, and I, I've yet to compile my own, you know, favourite 10. That's going to be something I'm going to be looking over the next few days to do. But I will have to include a Bernard Herrmann film score. 
maybe it'll be taxi driver but vertigo was certainly a consideration i i, I think the only personally i think the only bernard herman score that might beat vertigo is psycho yeah definitely you know that's another one that'd be in consideration as well it, it, it just it's one of these films like if you take John Carpenter's score for Halloween, if you take that out of the film, it just completely loses its guts, its ability to build tension. Um, you know, it's the same with innumerable John Williams scores, you know, with, with Elmer Bernstein scores. It's just like an intrinsic part of what the director is trying to achieve. And yeah, so much of the effectiveness of that th- first third of Vertigo is down to the score. Yeah, there's very little dialogue. You wouldn't even notice how little dialogue there is for a movie of this age. Kim Novak doesn't actually speak until more than a third of the way into the film. Oh my goodness, I never even noticed that. Right, let's deal with Kim Novak. Uh, obviously, we've talked about Jimmy Stewart and the fact that he's play- playing against type. And, you know, show mm-hmm. me a film where Jimmy Stewart is anything less than, you know, brilliant. But Kim Novak, I think originally Hitchcock wanted, I think, Vera Miles to play Judy. He was obsessed with Vera Miles. Yeah. He was trying to make her a star over and over again. I think his obsession with her is very interesting considering the themes of this movie being obsession. Um, so, something I definitely want to talk about about this movie is how laid bare Hitchcock's own style when it comes to filmmaking are in this and Rear Window. But anyways, name another Kim Novak movie other than Vertigo. It, it's hard because I honestly, I don't think she's, she's obviously has to have done other things, but nothing else is. The only one I can it, think of is, is a film that's actually like sort of intrinsically linked to Vertigo. It's, it's Bell, Buck and Candle because I think that Columbia Pictures at the time, she sort of leased out Kim Novak in exchange for a payment, I think of about $250,000 by Paramount uh, to Columbia Pictures. And the agreement was that James Stewart would co-star with her in their next film, which would be Bell, Buck and Candle, which came out the same year. So, but but apart from that, I can't think of any sort of yeah. She she's just not an actress. I can think of in any role other than Vertigo. I'm actually looking through her Wikipedia page right now, and you literally see like early life, then just scrolling through three pictures from Vertigo, and the next section is career slowdown and other early ventures. It's like okay, so yeah, <laughs> this is pretty much it. But she works really well, and obviously, if you have not seen this movie, she's playing in a sense two parts she's playing madeline which is a ruse for the first two-thirds of the movie and then she's playing her true self judy for the last third uh, a, a brunette woman that is struggling that moved to san francisco to get away from whatever family trauma she was experiencing and met this rich man that said pretend to be my wife fool this guy i'll, I'll give you some money and just happened to fall in love with jimmy stewart and uh like you said before hitchcock kind of spills the beans early because after uh madeline has supposedly died which was just a plot for uh, gavin to kill his wife jimmy stewart falls into a deep depression has an amazing dream sequence that leads that off and then later after he's released from the hospital he keeps seeing her everywhere until he runs into this brunette that looks suspiciously like madeline but acts completely different. She's not a sophisticated woman. She's not a socialite. She's a little bit grungier. Not grungier. Not what? What would you say is a good word to describe Judy? Um, I think compared to Madeline, Judy's just a little bit more sort of um, rough around the edges. Um, yeah, she's you know I would you know she is literally at some point between sort of posh socialite and trailer trash. Somewhere around about halfway, you've got Judy. Whereas yeah. I think Madeline is more towards the sort of elite, sort of posh end. Mm-hmm. They needed a, a a third act where we found out that Judy was actually made up, and she really is trailer <laughs> trash. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
so so we have this woman that he meets and is asking to take out on a date. And at this point in the movie, if you don't know what's going on, you would just assume that it's Kim Novak playing two roles, and that's the whole thing. And you could easily make a movie where that is the whole buy, where it's that Jimmy Stewart had met this woman and fell in love with her and then meets someone that looks suspiciously like her but not enough and tries to make her over. But we learn that the truth that she was hired in order to to create this ruse for Jimmy Stewart to be the witness so that Gavin can murder his wife and make it look like a suicide. And that's given away almost immediately after we meet Judy. And in the book that it's based on, that's not given away till the end of the movie. That's the final twist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's massively ballsy of Hitchcock to do what he did with the twist. And, you know, just I can't get my head around how on paper you would just sort of come up with this plot that, yeah, it doesn't hold up to you know, forensic scrutiny, but at the same time, showing that twist as early on as he does in the film, it just, it just works like gangbusters. There's two things that everyone told him not to do. One was don't call it vertigo, call it anything but that. And the other was don't give away your twist this early. And I love Hitchcock's explanation for it because his whole thing with suspense, there's two ways. The one example he gave is there's two men having a conversation on a train. Mm-hmm. And at the end of their conversation, a bomb explodes. Yeah, It was underneath them the whole time. When you do it that way, where you reveal the bomb at the end, you get one big bang. Yeah, But if you reveal before they start talking that there's a ticking time bomb beneath them while they're talking, suddenly then every moment is an explosion because you're just waiting for it to happen. So for him, withholding the information of who Judy was doesn't have the suspense. Once you know that Judy is Madeline and that's revealed the entire rest of the movie, you're just wondering, well, what's going to happen when Jimmy Stewart Mm -hmm. finds out? What is he going to do? And it adds the additional suspense because he's making her over to look like Madeline. And Kim Novak's character, Judy rather, is constantly afraid the more he does this, the closer she is to being found out for who she really is. Yeah, obviously you know, you've got that sort of contrasting thing of yeah, um, Kim Novak plays two distinctly different characters, and you've got the very stoic sort of you know straight-backed Madeline, and you know I think a lot of credits has got to go to the costume designer Edith Head. Edith Head, yeah, Edith Head, who you know anyone who loves the Incredibles films, <laughs> the, Ed, Edna, Ed, Edna, there's there's just no better homage to someone to one of you know the sort of unsung heroes of Hollywood. Edith Head, I, I don't think anyone has won as many Academy Awards within their field as Edith Head. I think she's actually won eight Academy Awards for Best Costume Design. I, I believe you're right. There's an episode of Columbo where she guest stars as herself and her in her office she has all of her Oscars proudly on display. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, you know, she. I think everything comes together. You've got those incredible opening titles from Saul Bass. Saul, Saul Bass, who... You know, again, in fact, and and before I get picked up on it, it was Saul and Elaine Bass. They, you know, they they were a duo for which Saul usually got most of the credit. You know, you've got the incredible opening titles. You've got that amazing dream sequence. You've got Bernard Herrmann's score. You've got some absolutely phenomenal editing. You know, the, the editing is just. I think it was George ah George, George Tomasini, Edith Head, Hitchcock. Basically, everything has has come together perfectly for him. Which, which again begs the question, how did the film not succeed? Because yeah, it's just, it's all of these little complex pieces of a puzzle. You know, when, when you're just watching a film and everything about it sits right. Yeah. 
and 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 you you shouldn't be surprised that it comes together so well with a with a Hitchcock film. He was all about the pre-production. That's why he's always working with these people that are at the top of their class, the Saul Basses, the uh, the Bernard Hermans. He he basically almost didn't even need to show up to the set in order for the movie to turn out well. He was so meticulous in the pre-planning that if he just stopped after that and said, okay, my assistants will take care of the rest, I don't think there would be that much of a difference in the in the uh, finality of the film. I agree. And, you know, years after, you know, the, the sort of fate, and, you know, there's no doubt it was a failure. I think it cost somewhere in the region of about $2.5 million to make, and I think it grossed just over 35 in the U.S., which, you know, that is not a tidy return, you know, no. even for, you know, $1958. You know, he, he blamed... Kim Novak saying that she was miscast, she was the wrong actress for the part. He says that you know people would have had an issue with the twenty-five-year age gap between James Stewart and Kim Novak. I think um, mm-hmm. he was forty-nine at the time; she was twenty-four. You know when they shot the film in nineteen fifty-seven. You know there's all these little things that you know he could blame you know as to why that film just wasn't a success. And I just I can only go back to the fact that I just don't think maybe maybe it wasn't marketed well at the time. Like I feel like all of these things like. The age difference that doesn't bother anyone with high noon. Gary Cooper is like what five times older oh than Grace God. Kelly. Grace Kelly's literally what is she nineteen in that film? Yeah, she she that that's that's it's creepy. And yeah. they were actually having an affair while they were making that. Well, apparently Grace Kelly was notorious for sleeping with leading men. Oh God, Grace Kelly! We could just do an episode on how much I love Grace Kelly. Oh, and wow. obviously Hitchcock liked her too. Yeah, he did. I think he used her in uh, was it Dylan for Murder to Catch a Thief. Mm-hmm. Rear window, and she was supposed to be Marnie. She was supposed to be Marnie, but but uh, she was already the the queen of uh, Monaco, Monaco, and she didn't want to play a thief. Yeah, I'll, I'll say hands down now, gun to my head, the most beautiful actress ever to be on screen, Grace Kelly, without doubt. I'm gonna going to 100 percent agree I, with you. I just think um, I, I I'm not anyone who's read my piece on To Catch a Thief. It, it's it's far from being my favorite Hitchcock film. She is that actually a, might be my least favorite. Yeah, it it just for me it just doesn't work. It it yeah. it, it looks incredible. It, it's just you know I mentioned these three films of Hitchcock's that look just phenomenal. One of those films I love that's Vertigo. The other two films I'm not particularly fond of. The Trouble with Harry, which just looks absolutely staggering. You know, shot in this little sort of rural village in autumn uh, in Technicolor, looks incredible. The other one, To Catch a Thief, shot in the French Riviera. You've got Grace Kelly, you've got similar sort of lighting to what we see in uh, Vertigo with all these greens and cyans and, and blues and reds. And then Grace Kelly, just looking phenomenal. But for me, she peaked in rear window. Yeah. Something that certainly doesn't hurt her in my book is that she's from Philadelphia. Really? Wow. Yeah. But yeah, you know, to, you know, to think that her and Gary Cooper, sh- you know, could be, you know, a viable couple in high noon. And yeah, that, that may have been a problem for audiences here. Although I do think that Kim Novak, she does look an older 24 than, you know, she lets on. And actually, well, I actually think Jimmy Stewart looks older than 49 to me, but there you go. Yeah, uh, it's, he, he's a 1950s 49. He is. Not, uh, not, a, not a 2000s 49. Yeah. You know, but he didn't even look that much younger in Rope, which was made in 1948. That was 10 years before Vertigo. And yeah. I just think he's one of these guys that's always looked sort of, he's never looked young. Yeah. No, he looks he looks kind of young in like the Philadelphia story. Not to keep talking about Philly, um, but but definitely after the thirties, he's always looked the same. Yeah, and and I think Philadelphia story and Mister Smith goes to Washington. He's he's actually got dark hair there, but as soon as his hair sort of went that sort of silvery color, then that was it for him. I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
I, I'm doomed then. <laughs> my my grey is overtaking the dark, and you know it's yeah. Same here. It is like my wife says. It's distinguished. Okay. Yeah. Um, we're trying to do things chronologically, but just so we don't get to the point where we finish and think, "Oh shit, I re- wish I'd really mentioned that." What are the things about Vertigo that you need to get off your chest now that you just want to celebrate or or, or highlight, and, and just the things about the film that you love? I, I will speak I, – I kind of hinted at before that I wanted to get to this, how this is th- – there are two elements of Hitchcock's technique that I think are uh, showcased best in two of his movies. One is Rear Window. Mm-hmm. Uh, his entire means of building suspense is shot, reverse shot, reaction shot. That's all that movie is. Jimmy Stewart sees something. We see what he sees. We see how he reacts. An entire film is built around that. And two, the second thing is Alfred Hitchcock's obsessions, dare I say fetishes, his ways of the things that make him tick and how he loves to mold over people, especially women, in order to make them fit into his idea of how a movie should be. Because that's exactly what Jimmy Stewart is doing in the last act of this movie to Judy, to turn her into Madeline, to turn her into his dream girl, dyeing her hair. Obviously, Hitchcock always loved platinum blondes. He always wanted his actresses to have blonde hair. The fact that he was obsessed with an actress like Vera Miles, how he wanted to make her a star, wanted her to star in Vertigo, and believed that if she got pregnant, that's the entire reason that she couldn't do Vertigo, and blamed that. Oh, if you hadn't gotten pregnant, you would have been in Vertigo. You would have been a big star. Because of that, you were never a big star. He has these obvious obsessions. This is everything laid bare, and he... I don't think that he was ashamed to admit that. He was very much about putting everything that made him tick into his movies. He had a fear of the police. He had a fear of God. He always has those judgment shots from above. But this is maybe his darkest thing, his his manipulation of women. Obviously, there have been reports, especially from Tippi Hedren, uh, about how he did some not good things as a human being, things that if were revealed when he was still alive would have ruined his career. That's what he's doing here. And he's taking this Jimmy Stewart character, molding it into this perverse person that Hitchcock is kind of deep down inside. And, and it's innately sexual when he's trying to redress Madeline. This is something that he's very vocal about in his interview with Truffaut. Um, He's completely made her over into everything, but she's come in and hasn't done the hair up right. She has not put her hair up. And Jimmy Stewart's very disappointed. He's very upset. No, you didn't try Kim Novak saying, oh, we, we did. It didn't work. It didn't look good. He said, no, you have to do it. You have to do this. So she walks into the bathroom. She fixes up her hair. As she walks out, she's walking from behind this green, ethereal, like, fog, like a ghost emerging from the ether. And he stands up. And literally, what he's been doing there, it's he's it, it's like he's spending this time with this girl, but she won't take her, her underwear off. He said knickers. She won't take her knickers off. And she walks out with the hair up. He stands up. That is literally meant to represent the fact that at that moment, he has an erection that he hasn't been able to have since he met Madeline. And it's like, oh, Hitchcock, don't say those words. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't talk about this so so obviously. But that's really what it's representing. He's representing that that this is his ability. He, he, he can't excuse my language here. He can't get off without her doing this for him because he's become so obsessed with this one ideal of a woman. I think it's the way that Hitchcock uses lighting and color in the film to highlight certain moods. Like, you know, the lighting changes when you know, when, when Scotty first sees Madeline in, in, in the restaurant. 
and the, you know the light around her when she sort of stops as she's about to walk past them you know everything becomes extremely bright and, and sharp focus mm-hmm. and then you've got you know um when this is the thing that i I've, I've only noticed probably on about maybe my fifth or sixth view in the vertigo when uh midge played by barbara barbara Balgedis and and scotty go to the, the old the old bookstore mm-hmm. and i'd never noticed this until the last time i watched it a few days ago when they're in the bookshop things just become incredibly dark. It's almost oh, as yeah. if the lights are dimmed. Then once they exit the store, you've got a shot of them stood in front of the shop with the old guy still in the shop inside. When they leave and they're, and they're continuing their conversation, the lights inside the shop sort of go back up bright again. I'd never noticed that before. Hmm. I do. I did notice when I was watching it, this is really darkly lit. Yeah. It almost looks like a mistake, but Hitchcock wouldn't make a mistake like no. that. And I, you know, I thought, is this something that there were there were poor elements when you were doing the restoration? They actually couldn't find, you know, a, a print where, you know, the clarity and the brightness was there and the contrast was there, and they've just sort of made do. But then, no, they, you know, when they go in the shop, everything's fine. Then the lights get dimmed down. They go back outside. It's broad daylight outside, and then the interior of the shop lights up again. And then you've That's got so cool. It is, and then and you've got when when Scotty first sees Judy, and he is now seeing her as he wants to with her hair exactly right she's got that sort of blue gray dress on and then she's lit by this sort of green light you know where is that light coming from it's, it's almost like as if they've smeared like vaseline on the lens to yeah well she does have that 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 gross green neon sign right oh, outside yeah. of her apartment but it, it, it's 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 me- I, green feels so unnatural in this movie but it's so cool yeah it, the the use of color is just incredible. I, I think you know mm-hmm. if we were to look at the sort of you know get a psychologist here to sort of rip apart vertigo, I'm sure they would you know they would go into all oh, sorts of field day. Yeah, this all sort of really anal sort of depth, which I just don't know if I'm I don't know if I'm capable of going into things with that sort of depth. But there's so much sort of meat to get your teeth into with vertigo that you know it, it's just one of those films. When I first saw it, I. I can't even. I don't even think I would have put in my top five Hitchcock when I first saw it. It's just one of those films that sort of grew on me like a fungus and just sort of got under my skin. But yeah, you know, for me that it's that first part of the film where we just almost become intimate with San Francisco. Like some of these, like the McKittrick Hotel. I think it was called the Portman Mansion at, at, at Goff Street in, in San Francisco. When I read that that was actually a building in the middle of San Francisco, I thought, no, that that, that looks like an existing building that they've just redressed basically to look like someone has plonked a version of the Bates Motel in the middle of San Francisco. It just, it almost looked like a haunted house in a, in a way compared to the sort mm-hmm. of fairly, you know, modern architecture that's surrounding it. Just, the, you know, the sedate pace, the fact that you've, it's almost like having like a, a sort of moody guided tour of San Francisco. And then when, when you go to the outskirts and, you know, you, you see the sort of beautiful countryside and then you go down to the Golden Gate Bridge, there's this little shot. So I think you could just take them, freeze frame them, just put them in on, you know, you could just get them blown up in a canvas and just put them on your wall and they would just look like works of art. My, my background on my iPad is the, sh- is the shot of Kim Novak standing at the, at the foot of the Golden Gate Bridge. That is just such yeah. a expressive shot. And then we also have them like in the Redwood Forest. It's there, there's so much, so much good stuff here. Yeah, well, you know, I think when we did the banner for this episode, which we've, we've put out prior to the episode when we've asked for, you know, for people's input, which we'll come to later. 
you know, I was going to use the Golden Gate shot, but I realised that's the one we use when we did the the film eighty nine shot of the day and when we pick Vertigo because at the moment we're trying not to repeat films, so we've only put one <laughs> shot of Vertigo on. on can you imagine how painful that was trying to pick one shot from Vertigo as the shot that represents that film? It was just impossible because you know you're flicking through and there's just so many great shots that we could have used, and I think ultimately we went for the one that best represents the film. You look at it straight away and you say, yeah, that's Vertigo. I think you chose well. I, I'm looking at it right now. The, the the silhouette. I think that actually might even be more perfect than her at the uh, yeah at the no, foot of the Golden Gate yeah, Bridge. Yeah, no, that's that's the one we've used for like the little sort of the, the the Twitter banner we'll put up when we when we're sort of promoting the episode. But yeah, it's just the it's the feel of the film. It's the score. It's all of those things. Any any other film that's got these little plot points like this, which have got that cumulative effect of adding up. And when you've got someone that looks at things quite logically like me, and I always attack the writing of a film before anything else, you know, from my point of criticism, I should really be marking this film maybe down to a, a 9 out of 10. But but I can't, because the cumulative effect of all of the other great stuff is, is a 10. I'm not going to say that this is my favourite Hitchcock film, but it's certainly up there. Let's come to Sight and Sound. Back in 2002, when I think Sight and Sound magazine, they put number two behind Citizen Kane. And then 10 years later, it actually, wait, with Sight and Sound magazine in 2012, put Vertigo ahead of Citizen Kane in the number one spot. Is Vertigo a film that's worthy to be considered as the greatest film of all time? I know that's a completely objective question. I wouldn't put it as a number one film of all time. No. But but I would never say I'm upset to see it up there as a number one film of all time. It's my favorite Hitchcock. I think I like it better than Citizen Kane, and I actually do really like Citizen Kane. Yeah, I have no qualms with that, that being considered number one. It's not like I'm like, oh, how dare they put that at number one? It's like, okay, Vertigo's great, good. It is, and you know, I think they, I don't know how many critics come together to sort of do that poll. I think it's it, it's pretty much in the hundreds, like hundreds of critics yeah. sort of, you know, put their pennies worth in there for that film to come out on top. Again, it just beggars belief that the film wasn't a success back in 1958. I think it clearly has had a bigger impact on non-American viewers. Like, obviously, Truffaut loved Hitchcock. And he wasn't considered an auteur. He wasn't considered an artistic director. He was considered a, a workman. Like, oh, he gets he gets stuff done. He gets movies made. Uh, sure, they're popular, but he's a celebrity. And Truffaut's changing the way the critics look at it. And then you have someone like uh, Chris Marker, who, who's throwing vertical vertic- Vertigo is in La Jetée because it's also in 12 Monkeys and then it's also in Sans Soleil. He's always going back to this as being this movie that had a great impact on him when he, when he was young. I think that going back to your original point, what was wrong? I think you're right. I think it was ahead of its time. It had a bigger impact with these filmmakers that would go on to change cinema after Hitchcock and because they had this impact, they are championing it, championing it after the fact and holding it up, hoisting it back up to the status that it deserves. Well, let's look at Vertigo, Dave, from the point of view of films at the time and Alfred Hitchcock films at the time. You know, you had, um, I think The Man Who Knew Too Much came out in 56, 55, you know, he had the double hitter of To Catch a Thief and The Trouble with Harry, two very sort of light-hearted sort of romantic comedy romps. But then you've got this film then. He, he, he doesn't sort of put any hooks into the audience. He sort of gets us to accept the fact that we're going to be basically seeing a, you know, a very picturesque, but still a guided tour of San Francisco. He's sort of easing us extremely slowly into this sort of supernatural mystery. And then, given this complete rug pull, which would usually happen at the end of anyone else's film, 
where we find out that where this story is going is not the case. This woman has now died, and then we see Scotty in recovery, and you know, all, all along, I think on a first viewing, someone's going to be saying, "Where is this film going?" You know, the whole tone of the film. There's yes, there's you know, there's a lot of like light-hearted banter between Midge and Scotty, but then by the time you get to our last act. It takes an incredibly sort of dark turn. And and when Jimmy Stewart is dragging Kim Novak up the steps of that bell tower, he is just complete rage. And, you know, I think, and again, spoiler alert, if Judy hadn't already fallen off that tower herself when she gets spooked by the nun who sort of asks them what they're doing here. As a dark shrouded yeah, figure of fate. It is. And when, when you see her coming out of the darkness, it, either, either way, it's, it's a sort of gut punch ending. And then on top of that, the person that's put all of this sort of plan into place, Gavin Elster, he actually gets away with it. Yeah, at a time when it, Judy pays the, the Hayes Code punishment instead of she Gavin. Does, Gavin yeah. gets away. Because obviously the Hayes Code at the time stipulated that any time a character commits murder or adultery or anything seen as as unsavory and, and you know and wrong, the film has to show that person getting punished. But Gavin Elster has put into place this extremely you know, long-winded plot to get his wife bumped off. It works perfectly. And we haven't even mentioned the the coroner scene. The, the coroner who's just basically saying, Scotty, one of your colleagues died because of your carelessness. And now this woman has died again because of your carelessness. Could you have saved her? And, you know, it's just... The, the whole tone of the film has got this nasty sort of dark edge to it, which watching the film nowadays probably seems quite tame, given mm. the fact that we've, you know, we've had... God knows we've had like a glut of torture porn like in the last 10, 15 yeah. years. And, but yeah, for 1958 viewers, you know, this was not, you know, the expected sort of thing that even, you know, you would have got from like the so-called master of suspense like Alfred Hitchcock. And I certainly think it's definitely, you know, alongside Psycho as one of his darkest films. Yeah. I I don't know. Psycho has some fun to it, though. That's fun suspense. This isn't fun suspense. No, you don't no. leave Vertigo saying like, oh, boy, did I eat popcorn? You leave Vertigo saying, I feel terrible. <laughs> and and I, I think a question you were about to ask is if Judy hadn't fallen, could these two have repaired the relationship? I think Jimmy Stewart thinks they could have. Judy probably doesn't. I, I was actually going more towards the fact that would he have actually pushed her off himself? See, I don't think so. I think he's devastated when he when she's dead. I think he just wanted to hear her admit. I I, I don't I don't mean just I just mean carelessly in, in just a fit of rage, just shaking her, and then he's just completely just unbridled anger. The fact that he's been and quite rightly so brought along for this ride. He spent months in you know a psychiatric ward. You know this woman has been quite happy just to get on with her life afterwards to accept whatever payment Gavin Elster has given her quite carelessly in the form of the Carlotta Valdez sort of jewel she wears around her neck. It gives it away to Jimmy Stewart. Oh, yeah. And again, you know, that's, would this perfectly plotted plan, would she have really been so careless? I think there's part of me thinking that she actually wanted to confess and that was the way she did it. By, you know, getting that necklace out and getting her or getting Scotty to put it on her. That was like a sort of, look, this is confession time. I can't keep this in any longer. It needs needs to happen for the movie to happen. It it does, it does. But I think that's my way of sort of explaining out that little plot convenience. The fact that yeah, yeah, she's sort of making things happen in that way because she needs closure on it, and I think she needs ultimately to confess to Scotty if their relationship's going to carry on. I'm going to say that I think that she, since she pulled off the ruse, when when she emerges as Madeline, and he still doesn't get it, she feels like she's safe. Yeah. So her guard is down. That that that's my explaining away of it. I I think both makes sense. I, I think 
the one the one character we have not given enough credit to is Midge and how fantastic yeah. the, this I'm doing air quotes frumpy uh, female friend of Jimmy Stewart that, that he leans on at any moment for emotional support until a young blonde pretty thing comes around and she feels neglected and depressed. She is just a great and interesting character as this person that Jimmy Stewart obviously leans on. And, and I, I feel like I probably was not the uh, idea at the time, but but I I feel like that helps kind of put down the theme of this movie as like, oh, if it wasn't for toxic masculinity, maybe we'd be okay. If it wasn't for the fact that Jimmy Stewart feels like he needs a woman to talk to about his feelings, like Midge, who feels completely repressed, or the fact that, oh, I love this one woman, this girl looks somewhat like her, I need to change that and make her look exactly like her. Maybe this all would have worked out. Who knows? Yeah, it's a bit of a strange relationship they've got because, you know, as Midge says, um, they were, or I think Scott actually says, weren't we engaged once? And I, you're going to remember if you were engaged to, you know, who I think pretty much she's his best friend now. Yeah. And, and also the fact that it seems like they went to college together, yet she looks 20 years younger than him. Yeah. And I think actually at the time she was a good few young, uh, years younger than, um, than Jimmy Stewart. Because, of course, you know, when I first saw this film, and again, this is the second time the Dallas has come up on, on, on the podcast. <laughs> but Bill Scurry brought it up a few weeks ago when we were talking about um, television. And, you know, Barbara Balgetti's for me was always um, Ellie Ewing in Dallas, you know, a show which I grew up watching, like sort of through osmosis from my mum who, who would who would watch it religiously. And then and I sort of got into it from there. So like, you know, seeing her like sort of much younger and, you know, as much as she looks, I think she's purposely made to look a little bit frumpy and a little bit yeah. sort of, you know. Well, with, she's she's wearing glasses. <laughs> In the 1950s, glasses means frumpy. And what's that thing about where she, you know, quite carelessly when she she does her own recreate and um, sort of recreation of the Carla of Valdez painting with her head on it? It's like at what point did she ever think that that Scotty was going to see that as something amusing? I, I can totally see movie logic. It's like this is what's going to make him notice me. I'll be the object of his affection. Uh, I'll yeah. be the object of his, his obsession when he sees this. Oh, I messed it up. And, and again. When I when I made the, the comparison to, to Basic Instinct, taken to an extreme, you've got this sort of um, you've got Michael Douglas's character who is completely obsessed with Sharon Stone's character, but then he's got this other female friend who he he's been intimately involved with. I think played by Jean Triplehorn, and and for me when I I've gone back and watched Basic Instinct, having seen Vertigo, I thought ah now the Jean Triplehorn character is sort of she's a version of Midge taken to an extreme where ultimately there's the question of ah is Jean Triplehorn's character the actual killer? And you know it's it, clearly Midge is someone who is smitten with Scotty, and you know I think she sees Madeline or or Judy as as someone who, who's sort of getting in her way, but obviously because she's such a nice sort of wholesome character, she's never going to do anything to sort of stop that. But you know, mm -hmm. in, in a way, I think she's kind of a victim of, of all of this. And oh, of course. And ultimately, you think Scotty is just beyond repair at the end of Vertigo, and mm -hmm. I don't think you know even if there was a, a chance of romance between him and Midge, I just think that's it for him now. If he was a mess after Madeline died, oh yeah, he was in an asylum. Yeah. For What's, once, what what is he now going to be like at the end of Vertigo? And if you go, you, you know, you say you go away, you know, with your empty bag of popcorn and, and, and think, yeah, I've just been entertained. But whereas with this film, you just like you don't even want to give that too much thought because it's just a complete gut punch of an ending. The downer. It is. It is. It is. As you said, Dave, uh, that's your 
that's your favorite Hitchcock film. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think for me there's anything else. I think I've missed out. It, you know, it's just a film that I think, unlike films like The Birds and Psycho and, and Rear Window, which I, I sort of fell in love with straight away, this is a film I've sort of slowly become to lo- you know come to love and appreciate over the years. Before we move on to our, our, our listener sort of input, where they sent in their their favorite Hitchcock films, I don't want to put you on the spot, Dave, because this I haven't given you any prep for this. But if Vertigo's your number one, are you able to sort of formulate you know a, a two to five? Uh, and sort of give us an idea as to how the rest of your list of favorite Hitchcock films looks. Yeah, two through four is going to be pretty solid. Number five is probably a rotating draft now. Obviously, Vertigo's number one. Mm-hmm. I'm putting The Lady Vanishes at number two. Oh, I absolutely yeah. adore that movie. Amazing. That that movie really took me by surprise when I first saw it because it first starts like, oh boy, Hitchcock has not gotten his in his groove yet. But then the more you see, it's like, oh, this is fantastic. By the end, you're just so entertained. It's such a great movie. And, and that's another film where I just completely fell in love with with Margaret Lockwood. Yeah. I just thought she was, oh, what, a, what a just beautiful lady. You know, I think that was when I actually watched Back to Back with The 39 Steps. And, you know, I think they were like the, the, the first sort of older Hitchcock films I came across. And they just had such a, a wicked sense of humor that completely took me aback. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly for films made in the 1930s. Yes. Oh, oh, oh that's my favorite of his of his pre-American films. Demo, obviously, because it's number two. Uh, number three, I have Rear Window, um, which obviously you also love. Yeah. Uh, number four, I'm going to put – I'm going to be weird. I'm going to put uh, Marnie at number four. Ooh. That one really took me by surprise when I first saw it because mm. that's another weird one. That's Hitchcock's style like on speed where it's it's completely ignoring all senses of normalcy and normal storytelling in order to tell it the way he wants it to be told. So I love that movie. And then number five, I don't know, it's kind of a tie between Psycho and Notorious. God, it's, this is, I, I don't think for me, at the moment, the, you know, the, the, the top spot for me, I, I think in the last couple of years, I've probably had three films that have actually been in the number one spot and it's, it's changed every couple of years. Oh, I'll, try, I'll try and do reverse order. Number five, I've probably got to pick Strangers on a Train. Number four, I, I think I'm going to go for, oh God, this is so tough. I'll put North by Northwest. Believe, okay. it, or, believe it or not, that used to be my favorite Hitchcock film. Fair. Number three, Psycho. Number two, Vertigo. And number one, no surprise there for anyone who knows me, Rear Window. One of my all-time favorite films. It, you know, it'd probably be in my top 20 favorite films of all time. And it's certainly my favorite Hitchcock film. I think that's a solid list. So uh, we did put out to social media a few days ago asking for input. Uh, before we do that, um, a few of the Film 89 crew have given theirs. Neil Gaskin. Now, he's not put these in any order. Um, a few people have ordered them, number five to one. But Neil has picked North by Northwest, Psycho, Rear Window, Vertigo, so and The Birds. Oh, I'm already thinking, now, would I put The Birds in in place of Strangers on a Train? And, yeah. Oh, God. That, that, again, that was my film that sort of got me into Hitchcock. So, yeah, maybe I would. Uh, Steve Amos, number five, The Lodger. I, I've not mm. seen I've not seen it. It's good. Number four, Rebecca. Number three, Vertigo. Number two, Shadow of a Doubt which I believe was Hitchcock's favourite of his own films. Mm-hmm. And number one, Rear Window. Uh, and he puts honourable mentions, everything else. Yeah, cheating. Good old Bill Scurry has picked... Num- <laughs> I'll, I'll go in reverse order for Bills and it will make sense. Number one, Vertigo. Number two, North by Northwest. Number three, Strangers on a Train. Number four, <laughs> Rebecca. And number five, Vertigo again. <laughs> yeah. Typical Bill. I like that. Uh, James Hancock, he's not put his in any order. I think, I know for a fact he likes Shadow of a Doubt a hell of a lot. So I'm seeing this in reverse order being Vertigo, 
The Lady Vanishes, North by Northwest, Shadow of a Doubt in number two, and then Rear Window. But again, he's not numbered this, so it could be the reverse of that. Martin Kessler has picked number five, Strangers on a Train, number four, To Catch a Thief, number three, The Lady Vanishes, number two, Psycho, and number one, uh, the Hitchcock film I said before we started recording, I've not seen, Dial M for Murder. Uh, Rob Cotto, who's another um, guest on Wrong Reel, at Rob Cotto, you'll find him on Twitter. Number five, Lifeboat, number four, The Wrong Man, Number three, Notorious. Number two, Frenzy. And number one, Shadow of a Doubt. So a lot of love for Shadow of a Doubt. Kyle Warner, you'll find him on Twitter, at KyleWarner3000. Psycho, Rear Window, Notorious, Strangers on a Train, and North by Northwest. Rivas, who's on Twitter, at PseudoAbogado. That's Pseudo underscore Abogado. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Again, he's not numbered his, but his list is Strangers on a Train, Rear Window, Psycho, Vertigo, North by Northwest. Good old John Arminio, who's part of the Wrong Wheel crew. You'll find him on Twitter, at Quasar Sniffer. His five is Rebecca, Notorious, North by Northwest, Lifeboat, and The 39 Steps. Stephen Simpson, who is on Twitter, at Stevo7, has picked number five, The Burbs. At The Burbs. Oh, God. That's Joe Dante film. Yeah, it's a Joe Dante list, yeah, actually. It is, yeah. Uh, sorry, number five, The Birds. Number four, Rear Window. Number three, Marnie. Number two, Vertigo. Number one, Psycho. Grumpy Harry at on underscore frames has picked, and again in no particular order, Strangers on a Train, Rope, Rear Window, North by Northwest, and Psycho. And last but not least, Robert Chouette on Twitter, who is at Robert Chouette, has picked number five, I Confess. And I must confess, I've never seen it. Neither have I. Number four, Shadow of a Doubt. Number three, Notorious. Number two, North by Northwest. And number one, Vertigo. So there's... You know, just, and again, that was probably a third of the list we had sent in. There was a lot of repetition. There was a lot of lists that were actually exactly the same. Sorry, you know, everyone who I left out, but again, you know, no one wants to listen to 20 minutes of me, you know, reading out everyone's favorite Hitchcock films. And again, you know, the only list, list I've given there is, is very fluid. And, you know, I can imagine maybe this time next week I might sit down and watch Psycho and that might jump up to number two, maybe even number one. I did ask for some listener questions. Uh, we, are, we are sort of a little bit pushed for time now. Stephen Simpson, who also provided one of his lists just there, who's on Twitter at SteveU7, has, has got one question that's Hitchcock related. He says... Is there any Hitchcock movie you would like to see rebooted or remade? I, I've had a bit of a think about that. And when I think of maybe a film like Rope, which I thought, yeah, you know, that, that sort of stage play sort of thing can find to just, you know, the one location. Would that work well now in 2018? And would it be able to offer anything, which, you know, the 1948 film did so well? You know, we saw back in 98 what happened when, you know, Gus Van Sant did that pointless remake of Psycho you know I, I just think I I hold Hitchcock in such high regard that I really just don't think there's anyone else that has got the right to remake any of his films I don't think unless someone can take one of the bare bones sort of ideas for one of his films and sort of add something new and modern to that it's just not something that I would personally like to see I'm afraid Stephen Dave what, what do you think I'm gonna say of all of Hitchcock's movies the one that is the most fertile for a remake that i think could be timeless enough that like oh this idea can be put into any decade and still be interesting as strangers on a train i i think that you could remake that and still make an interesting movie with without making hitchcock spin in his grave i do yeah and i, I did consider that because the the one thing i think will carry forward well is the fact that you've got two complete strangers meeting up and within the course of about five minutes one of them tries to persuade the other one to get involved in a plot to kill someone 
because it's a, obviously a double murder and it's going to be mutually beneficial to both. And I think, yeah, that's one idea that if you sort of modernise that, you could turn that maybe into a half-decent thriller. You know, maybe that's something that I don't know, trying to think of a director who could pull that off. Maybe David Fincher? Yeah, I'd love to see David Fincher's Strangers on a Train. Yeah. I would love to see that. Oh, great answer. And sorry, Stephen, I couldn't come up with anything, but good old Dave has come up with a pretty good <laughs> idea there. Yeah, maybe we should sort of um, try and get a basic bare bones script outlined on there. Dave and put, you know, get a copyright done before someone oh, yeah. else I'll, jumps I'll, on it. I'll write that out. Uh, I'll get sued. Um, <laughs> but I'll get it to David Fincher. So, Dave, thank you very much for coming on. It's been fascinating diving into one of my favorite films with you. Obviously, you've brought your A game as you always do. Have you got any upcoming, you know, podcast episodes planned? You know, anything we need to know about? Keep our ears out for. Um, I think that I'm going. No, no, I do know. Myself and Becky Deanna will be talking about our favorite subject, Igmar Bergman, with Aaron West on an upcoming episode of Criterion. Now, I assume I'm okay to talk about that. Oh, I mean, absolutely, yeah. The box set comes out on Tuesday. I cannot wait to uh, park outside of a Barnes and Noble, waiting for it to open, so I can go inside and buy it and own it and dig through it. But we'll be digging through that uh, in the near future, so we can talk about our love of Igmar Bergman and our how happy we are that 39 of his films have been finally put into one comprehensive box set. That's coming up. And I think James and I might be talking about the uh, the state of digital streaming and physical media and all that fun stuff in an upcoming episode of Wrong Reel. But that has not been recorded yet, so I don't know if I can talk about that yet. So two things that are upcoming that a non-disclosure agreement might prevent you from including them in the episode. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure James wouldn't mind. And yeah, I don't know. think so <laughs> that episode alone talking about you know the, the physical media and, and things like that yeah that that is oh god i can't wait for that one that's going to be awesome I, I think it's more so going to be on streaming media i think i misspoke there but definitely i'll i'll find a way to include physical media into that discussion oh yeah or if you can just keep it streaming related and then you know maybe we can do the big four-way and get adam rack off on and like the four of us can just oh, i think that would be probably like a three-hour long podcast that would probably sort of uh, repel a lot of people because i think we, we would just unleash our inner geekdom yeah <laughs> but dave uh thank you very much for coming on it's been great finally having you on film 89 um if people want to hit you up on social media and chat to you about film where can they find you well, I am on Twitter. My handle there is Cinema versus Dave. That is Cinema vs. Dave. Um, I'm always looking at Twitter. Everyone always tells me if they want to get in touch with me, they'll tweet at me before they'll actually text me. <laughs> Great. And uh, thank you very much for coming on. I, it was a pleasure to be here. Oh, I, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you, Dave. Uh, I think you know the, the, the pleasure is all ours. And thank you very much for um, lending us your time tonight. Uh, and you know, I don't mean to poach everyone from the wrong real crew, but you know, we've all become such good friends that you know, how can we not you know, invite people like you and Martin Kessler and James and and, you know, Bill scurry on. Fingers crossed, Dave, next year, um, we'll be able to get back together and sort of celebrate maybe the 65th anniversary of, of a Hitchcock film that I think I've mentioned quite a bit in this episode. I think we should. I think we can. I think we should do it. Definitely. So thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please, if you've, by some crazy thing, you've actually listened to us sort of lay bare this film and you haven't yet seen it, go out. Grab a copy of Vertigo. It is available. It's one of those films, fortunately, that is not hard to come by. Please 
watch the film let us know what you thought of it was our analysis fair you know did we cover everything you what you want to hear about and just basically give us a bit of feedback you know we're always getting loads of feedback about the podcast it's always much appreciated but please keep it coming you can follow us all on twitter and facebook at film 89 uk please check out the site um we have had a raft of of articles we've had jacob rivera who's come over from the wrong real crew and has now started uh, writing for us he's put a number of great articles up this past week neil gaskin has smashed out some incredible articles in the run-up to the release of creed 2 all discussing his favorite topic boxing in particular the rocky saga there's some of the best pieces he's put out please check them out uh, i think at the moment at the time of recording we're on rocky 5 and he's going to be putting out his piece on rocky balboa hopefully in in the next couple of days you can find me on twitter and facebook at sky movies please don't forget to email us admin at film 89 uk and if you can remember all of that but thank you very much for joining us. Um, we're going to have a next episode up uh, probably a week after this one is, which I'm really looking forward to. We're going to be getting Richie Roberts back on and Hayden Spurl from uh, Down Under in Melbourne. Really looking forward to that one. So as usual, stay safe, everyone. Stay happy. But most importantly, stay classy.